there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... What mode, according to which, would you say everything is received? <laughs> I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Father Conrad Murphy. Father Conrad, hello there. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I've been a priest for five years now, and I am the chaplain at the University of Maryland in College Park. Good to have you with us. Father Conrad joins us to talk this week about the sacramental life and the body. In your ministry, how have you seen the sacramental life impact the way people relate to one another? I, I think I think the first thing is when people recognize what the sacraments actually are, it sparks a whole change in people's lives. And the, and the sacraments are nothing less than God speaking to us about his love for us in our own language. And the easiest way I can explain this is that we as human beings don't speak purely spiritually. I mean, I'm sure you've tried it, Andrew. The, I'm sure I have too in prayer where I've just tried to like directly commune with God. But God speaks to us primarily through external signs and symbols. That's why he became one of us. He became man in order to convey to us his love in a way that we could understand and relate to and, and enter very deeply into. It's why friendship with God is something so personal and, and bodily in a lot of ways. And so the sacraments are the ways that God continues to communicate to us his love, and he does so in sensible, understandable signs that we can see and touch and hear and experience in our body in a way that helps us to understand that we are loved. And the example I usually use when I talk to couples in marriage prep is you can't tell your wife or your future husband directly everything that's happening in your heart. You can't connect a cable between the two of them, like an iPhone jack, and like connect the two of them and download intimately and exactly what's going on. You have to express it in some sort of outward fashion. And so I always talk to couples. I say, you know, you doing the dishes when you, it's not your turn to do the dishes, or you buying flowers or, 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 or chocolate or just taking out the trash are outward signs that convey some depth of your own love for each other. And God knows that that's how we communicate. We communicate bodily. And the, and beauty and sacrifice are the two kind of big keywords in, in that communication. God shows us how deeply we're loved through beauty and through sacrifice. And that's fundamentally what the sacraments are. They're participation in spread out kind of fashion in that intimacy of God's communicating his love to us through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I don't think, I think we inherently know that, that we need to express our love experientially and, and bodily. But I think it, it just helps everything kind of come together for these couples. They see, oh yeah, this marriage ceremony that we're about to enter into isn't just, you know, a big party. It isn't just a beautiful celebration of our own love, but it's an outward sign of God's love for us. That we the reason we have all these things is to show in physical way that God is present in this marriage. Same thing with Eucharist or confession or all these other different signs that are sacraments. They express that outward uh, outwardly, that that beautiful inward love. So, Father, are you telling me that it is not enough for me to merely think that I love a family member, but I have to actually go through the pains of saying it every time? If you have to ask that question, you're probably in a bad <laughs> state in your uh, family affairs. So, no, <laughs> um, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's one of the reasons why, like, when people say, "Well, you know, the rosary is so repetitive," and you know. Why, why Mary knows that I love her. God knows that I love him. Yeah, he does. But but we need to say it. Like we need to say it again and again and again. And as human beings, we need to communicate 
symbolically and externally uh, some of those depths in our hearts. If your spouse doesn't hear regularly or see regularly in the language they can understand that you love them, then that love is going to kind of start to dwindle a little bit. And, and it requires those repeated acts of sacrifice or of, of showing your love that help to manifest that. But surely it would be enough at least for me to just say I love you and then leave it at that. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> for for people who are um, who are purely auditory learners or whatever, if like your language is just that, then maybe that might cut it. But most of us experience love through all sorts of other different ways. You know, for some people it's gift giving. For some people it's seeing external signs of sacrifice, like doing the dishes or like washing the car, or mowing the lawn when you're not asked to, or when you know that it drives your other person nuts and you want to do something for them. And that's what God is too with us. God knows that we learn and we, we come to know him, not just intellectually, but the Dominican theologian Yves Congar says that requires a whole milieu of entering into God that for us to finally realize and know how much we're loved. And that's the tradition of the church and the sacramental life that we enter into. It's not enough for us just to hear a good homily every Sunday. We have to enter into the mystery to really know how much God loves us. And that's why we have physical external signs. And it's the same thing on the human level. If you want your marriage to succeed and to thrive, it's not enough just to write a tightly worded essay every week to your spouse. This is why you're important to me. Although that might be nice, actually. But uh, but it's to have this whole milieu of of, <laughs> of acts and, and of love that kind of maintain and hold the family together. Okay, so I should be good. As long as I find someone who is exclusively a pair of ears, (laughs) then I can just distill my expression of love to just that one medium of expression. Yeah, I guess that works. You could also juggle for them. I know you're a great juggler, Andrew. So, uh... Oh, that's not making it. (laughs) Yeah, it totally is. (laughs) I got lots of dirt. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so either a pair of ears or circus folk. Yeah, those, those work. Those work. Okay, I have some options now. That's great. I'm, I'm glad this turned into a, a like a self-help uh, kind of thing. I thought I was coming on here to talk about theology. <laughs> well, isn't that at the end of the day what theology is all about? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned marriage a minute ago as an area in which this can be particularly relevant. Have you had some experience in your ministry? Maybe not so much ministering to college students now, but earlier in your priesthood, seeing this play out in married life? It, it, I think it helps on a number of ways. And yeah, when I've done marriage prep with different couples, I've seen it help in a particular with how we communicate to each other. Just understanding, inherently we know this, but just understanding that we need to communicate in a varied kind of way, and usually in a physical way, helps them to see, oh, this other person needs something from me that more than just, you know, my own words or more than just, you know, an expression of love here or there, that they require something. And and especially it gets the couples thinking about how the other person receives love. That That's the thing about the sacramental life that's so beautiful to me. God lowers himself to us. Like God is considering us here. It's not like there's something magical about pouring water and saying certain words. God knew that those words and that water pouring would help us understand what baptism was. He lowered himself and adapted himself to our human nature so that we could then receive love. He thought about us first and then expressed love to us in a way that we could understand. And when I make that point to couples I'm preparing for marriage, it helps them to see, oh, this person I'm with doesn't receive love necessarily in the same exact way that I do. 
and that maybe something in my life I think is going to be great. Maybe my way of receiving love is when people buy Legos for me. And then I try and buy a bunch of Legos for my spouse and I wonder why she doesn't think that I'm just showing her so much love. And the reason is because she receives love in a different way than just receiving Legos, which I've taken that analogy too far. It's a great mystery. <laughs> and so so having, having that ability to think like God does and to see how does this person receive love? And then how can I communicate it outwardly in a way that they can not only receive, but really receive deeply? It helps so many couples to think, oh, okay, so this is how marriage is going to go. It requires my effort on that side to make sure I'm loving as God does. And then also it helps them to see that God loves them in their marriage and that the marriage is not just about melding two people and two personalities together, but that they have to be open to receiving the love that God has for them and that God is going to continually be pouring that love into them and giving them the grace to live out their marriage as well. So would you say, what mode, according to which, would you say everything is received? <laughs> oh my gosh, that was so awkwardly phrased and so wonderfully <laughs> phrased. Yeah, yeah. Can you can you phrase it the normal way? Yeah, exactly. So it was a great softball. So St. Thomas, one of my favorite phrases from St. Thomas is everything is received according to the mode of the receiver, uh, which means that you could be speaking truth to someone and speaking love to someone in your own language as much as you want. You know, we could do this whole podcast in German, but then most of our listeners would not be able to receive what we're talking about because they don't necessarily speak German. Could you uh, demonstrate the point for us? In uh, aber nicht jetzt, weil mein Deutsch ist nicht gut jetzt. Ich habe vieles vergessen. Aber, um, so, end of demonstration. End of demonstration. <laughs> that was really embarrassing. So, so when it comes to marital love, when it comes to any experience of love, like with me and my students, I have to be able to understand a little bit what they're going through and what they are receiving when I preach them. I might think I'm preaching really well and really powerfully about a particular subject, but if I don't know them and understand how they're going to receive it, then it's not going to work. And that's how God is with us. That's why God became one of us to speak to us in a language we could understand, uh, which at the time was Aramaic and Greek and Hebrew or whatever. He, he talks to us in a way we can really receive he knows the mode of the receiver. And so when it comes to marital life, that is an embodied mode, that we're fundamentally body and soul. We don't just receive things on the purely intellectual level or on the purely spiritual level. It has to pass through the body. And so part of that means that we have to acknowledge and see what are the person we're trying to love, how they receive love, and speak to them in that language. That's great, great softball about Thomas Aquinas, though. I mean, I couldn't have phrased it better myself. So based on what I'm hearing from you and the way you're you're relaying the church's tradition on this, it sounds like the more I'm able to open up different aspects of myself, the more I allow God to reach me. And in those different ways, however those ways apply to me, God is able to reveal his love for me in ways that might be very powerful and very particular. Is that where you're going with that? Yeah, I guess. I think that there are times, though, that God kind of shouts at us in order because we're, we kind of close ourselves off to his love. And usually we don't necessarily do it intentionally. We do it just because we're so wrapped up in the mundane world that we don't have time to see him telling us so much about his love for us. Or maybe we're just so used to our routine that we aren't able to fully receive God's love. Like we go to church, but it's just kind of the thing I do. And I remember when I, I was in seminary, I used to give tours of St. Peter's Basilica and I would take people in the front door and it was very intentional on my part to just stop and let them just 
look. And for those who had been there for the first time, I remember a couple times people just had tears in their eyes. All of a sudden, when we walked in that door, beforehand outside, we were talking about, oh, where should, where's the best pizza and what's going on? We have our taxi cab that we have to take to the train station at this time. There's all these kind of mundane little bits of conversation. But as soon as you walked into those doors, the beauty swept people off their feet. And it was evident that then now all of a sudden they were able to receive me talking to them about Jesus Christ in a way that outside in the long line that we were waiting in, they weren't able to receive. And so beauty, I think, is one of those ways in which God communicates to us and speaks to our hearts in a powerful way. And that's something to remember if you're trying to communicate to someone else in your life that, that you love, that going through the effort of making something beautiful and speaking to someone in a beautiful way helps profoundly. I remember reading a, a story about the Colombian government's attempts to bring the FARC rebels back into society and, and end the, kind of the civil war in Colombia. And they hired an advertising firm to do so. And they had the firm made these beautiful presentations advertising out in the jungle. So like they set up a big Christmas tree and beautifully lit it out in the middle of the jungle where they knew they were the rebels kind of would pass by. And it said, you can come home for Christmas. And it was beautiful. And lots of people came home. And then they did this thing where apparently they like floated all these balls uh, down the river that were lit up. And so this whole stream of light kind of went past their camps and things like that to show. And it was, it was each in each ball was a message from one of the people asking them to come back. And, and beauty worked where maybe other negotiation techniques had failed. Beauty is an incredible way in which God kind of breaks through the mundane shell we have around our hearts, just getting caught up in our daily things and speaks to us in our language. And beauty is the language that we can understand. There's a line from the Chronicles of Narnia where Aslan, is, is, who's the Jesus figure, is singing the world into existence. And one of the characters said, if I had known that something so beautiful existed, I would have been a better man all my life. And that's one of the ways God speaks to us as embodied creatures. We respond to beauty. We respond to true beauty. And that's why it's such an important part of our considerations of our faith and, and, and our relationships with others. I see you're, you're using the Colombian government as an example, kind of the way that uh, Jesus in Matthew 7 uses, you who are wicked who know how to give good gifts. <laughs> Even, not this at is all. not an endorsement of the Colombian government. They may be better or worse, but even if they know how to use beauty to draw people home then surely God must be able to. Exactly. And it was an effective campaign. It helped bring a lot of people home because of beauty. Beauty touches the human heart where other things don't. And it's something that's useful for all of us. Got to get in a Chronicles of Narnia reference. Always. Always. It's a trademark. I'm rereading it right now. So. Oh, is it that time of year? Yeah. In fact, I was doing it with some friends and we were going to write a five-page essay after each one. And so I wrote an essay on, I called it The Wealth of Snowbound Nations. And it was an economic analysis of the White Witch's 100-year reign and how she maintained control. And I wrote it in this like very, very like JSTOR-esque kind of style. And my brother's old boss sent it to all her colleagues in the Brookings Institution, and I got a bunch of responses from economists. Maybe, yeah, someone needs to write you an essay, because clearly that is your love language. Brother yeah, Conrad. definitely. F essays are my love language. Not enough friendship essays coming to the University of Maryland College Park Campus Ministry. That and Dairy Queen. Those are my two. <laughs> So there's a story, I think you remember it better than I do, about one of the more intellectual Catholic figures of the 20th century, and even she demonstrated the embodied nature of human love. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So so the story is about G.E.M. Anscombe, Gertrude Elizabeth Margaret Anscombe, and she was a British analytic philosopher and very Catholic, and she had a, a quite a large family. And one of the times she was pregnant, 
she came to her classroom and someone had gotten in there before her and had written Anscombe breeds as if she was cattle that was bred, you know, or, or a rabbit or something like that. And she just looked at the chalkboard and wrote underneath it, immortal beings. It's a really profound moment where she saw that underneath or, or within each of us is a spark of divinity that comes from God, the gift of the intellectual and spiritual soul, and that having a child was so much more than just another act of bodily propagation. It was something profoundly beautiful and, and, and deep, uh, something that is miraculous even, that God himself entered into, and she was a co-creator with God. And I think when we talk about love as being communicated embodied, I think this is just a beautiful example of that, that within this body she was carrying within herself was the spark of something much deeper and more beautiful. That's how love is with us. The, within each little act of marital love or within each little act of sacramental love comes something much more beautiful and deep, something richer, which is, God willing, charity, this divine living within us. Anscombe was a boss, and we're going to link to uh, her bio in the description because oh, she's, she's definitely so awesome. someone that... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, even she knew... Luminous beings are we, in addition to this crude matter. <laughs> now, who's the one who's pandering to their own desires? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gotta get the trademarks. Gotta got get the trademark Star Wars reference in. Father Conrad has his own podcast called Catholic Bites with a Y. Father Conrad, where can people find you? On yeah, they app? can find us at catholicbitespodcast.com or on you can search on Apple Podcasts, Catholic Bites, Bites is with a Y. It's a short 10 to 15 minutes on some aspect of the faith kind of nerdy and we have a lot of fun doing it hope you can check us out and we'll also have a link to catholic bites in the show notes you should definitely check it out father conrad thank you for joining us thanks for having me Longtime listeners might have noticed a few changes to the podcast sarah perla has moved on to do great work for the catholic project on their podcast called crisis which you can find a link to in the show notes Without her efforts in getting this podcast off the ground, we would not be able to continue it. So a huge thank you to Sarah. Also, a little change to the format. We will still have an interview guest every episode, but in the second half of the episode, we'll be joined by our friend and co-host, Kara Eschbach. Hello there, Kara. Hello, Andrew. For this episode, Kara and I are talking about My Neighbor Totoro. For those of you who are not familiar with him, Hayao Miyazaki is a Japanese animation director who has been working for over 50 years and has made 11 movies, I believe, and we watched one of them that came out in 1988 called My Neighbor Totoro, a movie which on the surface doesn't seem terribly related to The Call to Love, but actually has a lot to say and a lot to show about the call to love as it's lived out in the family and as it's lived out in relation to our created surroundings. Now, Kara, from what I understand, this movie was a bit of a rebound for you because your first experience with a Miyazaki movie was not entirely positive. Is that right? It redeemed Miyazaki for me because the first time I saw a Miyazaki movie was on a terrible date and <laughs> I had tainted it forever. This is... And Totoro was the first one I came back with, so it was a nice, like, palate cleanser. My Neighbor Totoro, for those of you who are not familiar, is about two young girls and their father in the Japanese countryside in, I looked it up, 1958. The movie doesn't specify, but the Wikipedia summary says uh, it's 1958. And their mother's in the hospital, and they are learning to adjust to their uh, new surroundings. They meet a forest animal, which they name Totoro, and his two younger Totoros. <laughs> and they 
basically they learn to adjust while getting to know their surroundings. It doesn't sound like that much, and to a lot of viewers there's an apparent uh, lack of plot. And at some point some outsiders might also see the movie as a little bit slow with not a lot happening at certain points. Especially if you're accustomed to modern movies, and also modern family movies that are constantly stimulating the senses. Kara, what were your thoughts on this? The first time I watched it, I did not really think it was that slow, mostly because it was new and I was just sort of enjoying it. I think it has this like visual beauty that just makes it really enjoyable to kind of sit with. This time when I was watching it, I realized that we don't even meet Totoro until 40 minutes into the movie, which is sort of mind boggling nowadays. Especially, you know, I just think more modern, especially like kids TV shows where they've now engineered these things to be as frenetic as possible so that kids don't lose their attention for more than two seconds. It's just notable how little is really going on. And even the introduction of Totoro itself is a little bit of a slow unfolding, which I think just sets a really interesting pace for the entire movie. This sort of like unfolding is the way that I would describe the entirety of the movie. That's that's a good way to put it. And just to reinforce what you're saying, this is a gorgeously animated movie. This is not anime in the typical sense. There is a ton of artistry that gets put into all of Miyazaki's movies. It's what he's known for, and that is especially so here. The way he animates little things, like a kid scrambling up the stairs or a frog slowly hopping across the ground, is so detailed and so lovingly done that it really speaks volumes about how the animators and Miyazaki above all feel about the, the source material that they're working with. Yeah, absolutely. And now we don't want to make it sound like this is going to be a totally meditative experience because there are a lot of little kids shouting in this movie. There is a little bit of shrillness, but it is definitely spaced out between these long periods of soaking in the surroundings and just looking up at the sky looking down at the ground, looking at raindrops. I say and... it felt really it felt really evocative to me of childhood in that way and just the sense of, you know, like a little kid staring at the ground like watching a worm. I feel like, you know, kids can do that for hours just like Absolutely. watching the motion of something and that's totally what this movie makes you feel like. Absolutely. And that's that's actually a plot point in the movie because like you said Totoro doesn't show up right away. But when May, the younger sister, does first notice one of the three little Totoro beings, she's doing nothing. She's on her own for the first time in the movie because her older sister's gone off to school and her dad's working and her mom's in the hospital. So she's on her own just out in the yard doing nothing. And that's when she first notices Totoro and the plot, such as it is, kind of kicks off. So that doing nothing is really necessary for the story to unfold. Um, and it's necessary for the story of anybody's childhood to unfold. If you're constantly stimulated with, you know, extracurriculars, on and on, it's hard to have any space to breathe. This is something that Miyazaki, the director, consciously works into his movies. It's this principle that he will talk about in interviews in Japanese. It's called Ma. Ma is that emptiness that comes in between moments of action. And he says that if you just constantly have moments of action, then it's just busyness. You need inaction to punctuate that, to come in between, to breathe, just to be able to exhale and to soak in your surroundings, which is what these we see these kids doing and what we do along with them. 
And fortunately, the, the artwork is so nice that it's pleasant to do so. And you're not just watching paint dry. But there is a kind of introspective, contemplative mood to this movie. And by extension, this movie is also saying that childhood should be able to have moments of that as well. Maybe a lot of moments of that as well. And that leads directly into their experience of dealing with the illness of a family member and of growing up and of meeting Totoro, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So you mentioned the illness of a family member. I mean, that's basically the sort of parallel plot line is that these two young girls have a sick mother who it sort of slowly is revealed why she's why they're there and why they've come out to the countryside. And it's interesting the way in which the parents and the kids connect and sort of the way that Totoro is this little bridge between the parents and the kids. Mm -hmm. I personally really thought that the dad was hilarious and the fact that he is, first of all, he just seems very childlike in his own sort of expressions and sort of like laughing hysterically. And he's like, I hope the house is haunted. I was like, okay, that's a little weird. <laughs> yeah, th thanks, Dad. I noticed this early on too, where I think they're riding a bike into town and he is riding an adult bike with his two children, one on the front and one behind. And he's like careening down this hill with his two kids. None of them are wearing helmets or anything. Yeah, it'll be fine. <laughs> That's that's who the dad is. He's kind of an absent-minded academic who's comfortable just kind of throwing caution to the wind. It's also like the 50s, you know, people like did crazy stuff. <laughs> they like to have seatbelts. <laughs> yeah, no seatbelts. Just let your four-year-old and your 10-year-old kind of go out wherever, just explore. That's something that I noted sort of time and time again, which I think also happened when, at least when I was growing up, I mean, I'm a kid of the 90s and I feel like there was a lot more, certainly more so than I see, you know, like my niece and nephew or some of my friends' kids. Like a lot of neighborhoods are not built to just let kids wander and roam and people don't know their neighbors as well. But I felt like in the 90s, my mom was like, as long as you can hear me yell for you, that's fine. You can't go inside somebody else's house without asking me first. But there was a certain sense of like, your boundaries were larger. And I feel like this movie sort of harkens back to that time where people just knew their neighbors more and they seemed to trust their kids in a lot of ways. I feel like oh. the movie, the movie trusts kids as well to deal with sort of mature themes, uh, things that, you know, they're talking about a sick mother and, you know, the, her sort of imminent demise, perhaps, is, will she get better? And I mean, I feel like the fact that that's a kid's movie, it's not a movie for adults to be dealing with something extremely serious. And the way that these girls deal with that is extremely mature. Yeah, it gets brought up explicitly, like when they're having a really difficult moment, the older sister Satsuki says to the younger sister May, like, do you want mom to die? Which is like really heavy. I was goofing around with Totoro a minute ago. And now like suddenly I'm faced with this extremely life and death situation is being thrown in the face of a four year old. Holy cow. Yeah, that was that was a real change in velocity. The way the movie characterizes the two daughters, Satsuki, who is 10 years old and May, who's four years old, they're wildly different. Satsuki is the most perfect, well-behaved, rational child I've ever seen in film. She's 10 years old, and she is cooking breakfast for her father and younger sister, and taking delight in eating vegetables, and willingly going to school on her own without any sort of cajoling, and she's just doing it all. 
and also partly raising her younger sister without complaint. (laughs) I'll take a kid like that. (laughs) That sounds great. And then May, on the other hand, is there. There are several moments in the movie which are these perfect encapsulations of May. She just shows up and you see her standing there angry, but also crying, but also determined to stay that way. And that's, like, everything you need to know about me. <laughs> I mean, it's so, like, a four-year-old, but also so much of, like, this very individual character. It, like, conveys so much, right? It's, like, she's got a lot of spirit. She's very emotional. She's adventurous, but also kind of scared and constantly saying that she's not scared, which is adorable and also very much like a four-year-old. And she just, yeah. like, clearly still looks up to her older sister, too, which... As a, I'm the youngest sibling, I feel like I just idolized my older siblings and that felt so true to me of just the like, I want to be just like them, even though like I'm not there yet, but I want to act like I am. I'm so cool. Like they're cool. Yeah. And especially in the first half of the movie, like that's May's game is she is doing everything her older sister does, exploring every like mysterious nook and cranny of their new house. That's a big part of the movie is that growth by imitating a bigger thing. That's how May has learned to grow up. Uh, one example of May's determination, her dogged determination, in spite of how difficult it is to navigate the world around her. At a certain point in the movie, she is talking to another character, Granny, about helping her mother get better. And Granny said that she's going to make this like vegetable soup for her, May's mother to help her get better. And May picks up this ear of corn saying, I'll give this to her to also help. Vegetables help, therefore this corn will help. That's sort of the four-year-old reasoning going on. And May holds this ear of corn for the next... I timed it, Kara. 19 (laughs) minutes. She is holding on to this ear of corn for 19 minutes of an 84-minute movie, which comes out Incredible. It comes out to over 22% of the movie she's hanging on to this ear of corn. And it's so big, and she's so little, she has to hold it with both hands the whole time. (laughs) It's so, like a permanent character trait, May and her corn. Yeah, exactly. If you see St. Peter with an upside down cross in his iconography, if you had an iconography of May, she would have the ear of corn to symbolize her like determination to help her ailing mother. Satsuki is in many ways imitating her. She's imitating what she thinks an adult does. Um, mm. And as a result, is kind of becoming an adult. I mean, but that's so true of life in general of like, I think I've heard this from artists and comedians about the fact that generally like you imitate other people because you admire them. And because none of us can perfectly imitate the person, you end up with your own style. But like that is how we learn and develop and sort of become our own thing is our complete inability to imitate somebody else who we admire, but also this sort of natural human need to learn by doing and by doing what we see others to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. And you and you see this sort of resemblance. It's built into the character's designs. Satsuki's hairstyle sort of matches the, the hairstyle of her dad. They both have this sort of mop top thing going on. And May's hair has this very distinctive like three strand bangs on her forehead that her mom in the hospital also has. And this this notion of growth by imitation comes in on the other side, seemingly outside the family, with Totoro and the two smaller Totoros as well. Mm. The little one imitates the middle one, imitates the bigger one. And in the middle of the movie, they show up and they're trying to help these sprouts grow in the family garden. And they're doing this ritual 
around the garden. And the two kids join the Totoros and imitate them. And then suddenly the sprouts start magically growing. And those sprouts are magically imitating the tree nearby that the Totoro is the guardian of. So this whole there's this connection between the growth that takes place in the family and the growth that takes place in nature. That imitation is necessary for that. I do have one sort of conspiracy theory about what's going on here. Not really conspiracy theory, but about oh, the symbolism in the movie. So it's weird that there are three Totoros when really only one of them does anything. There's the big one, which is what most people know as Totoro. And then there's little Totoro and tiny Totoro. And, <laughs> and I was thinking, okay, well, there's three Totoros and there's also three of them in the house. There's dad, the big one who sort of whisks mm. them away to the countryside. And then there's the middle one. And then there's the little one that sort of imitates the middle one and the big one. And I think this is supposed to be a reflection of the family. And this is sort of the kids coming to a better understanding of how their own family works, where the big one is the one who, you know, provides and owns the house. And then the, the little ones imitate the big one and are going to grow into the big one one day. And May discovers, you know, the little one first, which is her counterpart mm. uh, in this understanding and then she comes to discover the big one and i think there's something going on with this because at one point totoro whisks the kids up into the top of the tree and the dad is the one that teaches them about the significance of the tree and the sort of animist religious rites which we can get into a little bit later and yeah there seems to be a symbolic connection where the more the kids get to know totoro and the two little totoros the more they're getting to know their own family the only catch is, what the heck do we make of the cat bus? Because the cat bus is definitely <laughs> the weirdest of the four mystical creatures that we see in this movie. Oh, hands down. It has like 12 legs. <laughs> so the only thing I can think about the cat bus is that the cat bus symbolizes the mom. Because the cat bus comes in at the end and takes them to mom and everything's all right. That's as much as I can make of it, though. I applaud the effort. I'm not <laughs> sure I'm buying it, but <laughs> I well, do think you're. I do think you're right, though, about the the like fam the familial mirroring between the Totoros and the family. Um, the cat bus just seems to be its own quirky. Welcome to what will be anomaly. a recurring. Welcome to what will be a recurring segment on Made for Love, which is I applaud the effort, Andrew, but I'm not quite buying it. <laughs> Tune in next time. So we should caution you that this is uh, made by and for primarily Japanese people who culturally have a kind of animism in their religious rites, most notably associated with Shinto, but also associated with more kind of folk elements, which are not in agreement with the Catholic faith. And that's okay. Not every movie has to agree with it. We also want to make sure we're not endorsing those elements. We don't actually believe in forest spirits. But at the same time, this animism which Miyazaki has tried to incorporate into his work a lot of the time has a real role. And he's trying to remind Japanese society of these cultural roots. And in this case, literal roots, because they're associated with trees. This animism while maybe not necessarily correct in its content, still says a lot about who we are as human beings. Because it's a reminder that religion, even if natural and imperfect, is still part of who we are. It matters for human beings to be able to see their surroundings, to see the tree over there, and to see that it's not just a hunk of matter, but that it's there with some sort of 
meaning behind it, with some sort of intelligence, somebody to thank behind it. And that's what Miyazaki is very cognizant of a lot of the time. So even though it's animism, it's not totally Catholic in every or any sense, um, there's still a lot of value for Catholic audiences to sort of see these elements as well. Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting too, just that sort of desire for, yeah, I don't want to call these like spiritual beings, but I do think that there's a sort of human yearning for, for that and for faith. And that's one of the things I really liked about the reaction. Again, this is not this is not that it's a theological movie, but I can't help but like me as a Christian and as a Catholic, I was struck a number of times by the way in which the reaction of both May and Satsuki are that the way that we're told that Christ tells us to be like little children in their wonder and their acceptance of him. And I think you see that that in the reaction that the two girls have to the Totoros, they're immediately enchanted and so open to being with them. And I think there's like an inherent trust, especially with May. You know, I think that technically the word Totoro means troll, but you know, May just sees this as a protector spirit as somebody to be open to, you know, I think as, as anybody who's had like some experience in kind of your spiritual formation, that idea that we're supposed to be open and like children with Jesus, this just felt like a nice parallel to that, which I mean, back to the point about the sort of universal humanity that we have, I think that there is a desire to give ourselves and to be open fully to our creator and it sort of reminded me of that same connection that we have with Christ and that I think all of us have a desire to be able to be openly and easily jubilant in a world that so often teaches us to be on our guard. We know we don't have to be on guard with Christ and that's part of you know the joy of, of children and a reminder to us. It just felt like that, that point kept being brought up in the way that the children react to it and the way in, they, in which they react to their parents as well, that trust and openness that, you know, even as adults, we need to be reminded of, especially in our relationship with Christ. That's a really good point, Kara. And it reminds me of one of my atheist friends from high school, who I'm still in touch with, who was talking a little bit about why she doesn't believe in God. And she was expressing this concern about believing in something that was all powerful. Because if something was all powerful, and you sort of surrender to that something in this open way that you're describing, wouldn't you just open yourself up to being abused in some way? Or wouldn't you give that powerful something, whatever it is, some sort of license to abuse its power? And I thought that was so sad because there's this skepticism that the most powerful thing can be also the most good thing. Mm. And I think you're unfolding the kid's relationship with Totoro as a reminder that a spiritual power can also be a good power. Mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't need to be suspected because it's possible, and in God's case, it's actual, that power itself is also goodness itself. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I don't know if it's a particularly American thing, too, that sort of like skepticism of power. And obviously, I, we've always had a we have a difficult relationship with the idea of monarchy and things like that. But I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I think that there's something in our particular culture where I think for a human, it is true, you know, humans with absolute power, um, there are issues. And I think we've seen that in our own church and to be reminded that because humans have 
flaws does not mean that God has flaws. Jesus was fully human and fully divine, and he did not succumb to any of these issues. It's interesting that your friend found that to be scary because I find that to be personally one of the things that's so freeing about at least the Catholic understanding of Jesus is I can take complete comfort in the fact that I don't have to be skeptical or I don't have to be concerned about their desire for my well-being if I'm, you know, surrendering myself to that. And, you know, that doesn't mean that like life is going to be a walk in the park. You know, Christ also guarantees us that we will participate in his cross if we you know, are following his way. But I think that there's freedom in that giving yourself over. And I felt like the the movie sort of shows in the way that they go to Totoro for help when, you know, in their most dire moment of we, I need to find my sister. Satsuki is basically calling out to Totoro to help her and does, you know, they send in the cat bus with its 12 legs to, to go find May and then to take them to their parents to sort of be comforted by the fact that the parents are there. And it sort of is serving all these functions that we as Christians would see God filling for us and the reality of them and not just, you know, a, a movie character. Yeah, thank God. Is this the point in time where I can bring up how many boxes do you think Totoro checked off on Studio Ghibli Bingo? Oh, yeah. We, we, forgot, to mention, <laughs> we forgot to mention our running bingo game with all these Miyazaki movies. Because there are some returning themes when it comes to Miyazaki movies. One of the most common ones, flying machines. Totoro barely has any flying machines at all. One the cat bus is definitely a flying machine. <laughs> <laughs> the cat bus is anything we need it to be. <laughs> That's true. It's, it's mom. It's a flying machine. It's a biologically and anatomically improbable public transportation device. Um, <laughs> Our Studio Ghibli uh, game of bingo will continue, but I think we'll leave it there for uh, this episode. Kara Eschbach, thank you for joining us. Thanks. It's good, Brad. Have a good one. Every other episode, we're going to do a book series on men, women, and the mystery of love, the revised and expanded edition by Dr. Edward Sree, which is a practical exploration of John Paul II's love and responsibility, which uh, preceded and influenced his theology of the body. So we're going to start that next time, and we're going to discuss up through chapter two. So if you want to follow along with us, pick up the book and join us. National Marriage Week is February 7th to 14th, and our sister site, fouryearmarriage.org, has a ton of great resources to help deepen your reflection on the gift of marriage. And there's a link in the show notes. In the meantime, happy Valentine's Day. Thanks to Alejandro Del Pozo for the use of our theme music, and to Fulton Sheen for our sign-off. Bye now. God love you.